Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so happy to have Brian Burrow joining me in the studio. Um, it's April 7th, 2016. We've got Brian's book, Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence on the table with us. It's now out in paperback with Penguin Press. Brian, thanks for being a sport coming down to the station thrilled to be here. I wish I could have brought better weather. <laughs> I know it's um it's a bit it's almost snowing, right? Yeah, and off and on. And you've been traveling, you've been on the book tour yeah. uh, for the last I've officially week. brought the bad weather with me. Yeah. <laughs> you brought it from Seattle, <laughs> from did you Seattle, say? From Seattle, yeah. <laughs> Usually I would say, "Oh, nothing bad ever comes from Seattle." <laughs> I wouldn't hear of it. Before we go any further, I read your short bio in the book and then we can fill in some of fill in pieces of it. Brian Burrow is a special correspondent at Vanity Fair and the author of five previous books, including The Big Rich and Public Enemies. A former reporter for the Wall Street Journal, he is a three-time winner of the Gerald Lorch Award for Excellence in Financial Journalism. And now... Let's talk about the revolution <laughs> and fighting the power. Yeah. <laughs> and was your mom a revolutionary? Was she a, a radical? Is no, that why you dedicated I, the book to her? Or No, I dedicated the book to her because about around the time I finished up, she uh, she fell and suffered a brain injury. And mom's always been my every writer writes for someone. And I've always written for my mom. Oh. So, yeah, it was that. No, I, I have no personal link to. Uh, political violence or, or radical politics. This was purely a topic that I felt there'd never been a book on and that somebody should be dumb enough to go do it and it ended up being me. Well, in the author's note that starts the book, you said this project is the most difficult book you have ever written. Yeah, well, that's the reason no one's ever done it before. I mean, look, there have been memoirs um, and some, some books back in the 70s and 80s that tried to look at aspects of the violence that we had uh, in the U.S. in 1970s, perpetuated by these underground groups, but nobody's ever attempted to tell the whole story of, of all the seven or eight or nine major underground groups. Um, and it was rough. I had thought that there would be public documents, court records, FBI things that would allow me to tell the story as I've done in previous books. And that weren't redacted uh, or, well, or that, even existed, I guess, is what you're saying too, Brian. Those that I got were too heavily redacted to be of any use. Uh, many of them had been destroyed in the wake of a couple of FBI scandals during the 1970s. Still others involve cases in which people died, and so they're, 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 they're still not available because they're open cases. So I, I was about nine months into this, and I realized, wow, you are... You are really in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the whole idea of the book was just not um, it was not doable. And I realized that the only way to do it would be to kind of put on my old newspaper reporter's hat and go out and physically find these people and interviewing interview them. Now, I always knew that would be part of it, but I never knew it was going to be the main part of it. And so, I think the significance of Days of Rage is it's the first ever attempt to tell the story of this underground era in a, in a narrative nonfiction form. And it's the first time, you know, a, a lot of the people that were involved who were actually exploding the bombs, in some cases robbing banks, is the first time a lot of these people have ever come forward and agreed to speak publicly. And you were able to find them, their names, in news clippings. Like you were able to piece together that part and then, because I'm, I'm interested in 
maybe how you've found them, but and how you gain their trust. Well, it's not too. It's not that difficult to find people. Most everybody. Uh, got named in one newspaper account or another. If they weren't killed, they were arrested. Most of them are out of prison, but there's probably still a dozen that are still in prison. Uh, women, often, for all authors, are the hardest to find because when they get married, sometimes they change their names. Even uh, revolutionaries. Th- yes, this is, this is true. So people weren't that hard to find, but he, he was typically what would happen. Uh, I would call, let's say, Jim Jones in in Berkeley or Woodstock or wherever he was now retired and say, hi, my name is Brian Burra. Uh, I'm a writer. We've never met. You don't know anything about me. I don't happen to share your radical politics. But, but hey, while we're on the phone, would you tell me about that building you bombed in 1974? And, uh, you know... Didn't you get some clicks? Is that... Oh, I got more. I got a lot of clicks. I got a lot of hang-ups. Um... And, you know, I was pretty close to giving up when uh, one or two of them said, talk to my lawyer. And so eventually I did. And that was actually, you say the attorneys, the lawyers, were a really key piece, not only in your research and putting together the story, but in the time itself. That's what turned everything around was in terms of the ability to do the book, it turned out that all, uh, almost all of the people that were ever arrested and, and prosecuted for um, their activities in the underground were represented by the same little group of 12 to 20 uh, radical attorneys, most of them in the San Francisco area, but also in Chicago and New York. And once I got the trust of a handful of them, they began persuading their clients to at least meet with this guy. He doesn't seem like he has an axe to grind. He's just trying to write accurate history. Um, And then later, yes, you're right in that it turns out that the lawyers had, many of them had operational um, roles in the way some of these undergrounds, like the weather underground Money. function. Right. Yeah, One of the things example. that, well, just as a for example, people have never understood how the weather underground was funded because it didn't rob banks, unlike most of these other gr- groups. People had always kind of assumed, well, some of these kids were wealthy. Maybe they got money from their parents. And while that may be true, in fact, the vast majority of their funding came from these radical attorneys, uh, several of whom talk about it for the first time in the book, that they handed over, I, I mean, and, I mean, there was this one story of a $25,000 in cash in a paper bag. Um, you know, they raised money. Uh, the lawyers, many of them, uh, you know, served as couriers, uh, fundraisers, um, and every other uh, uh, type of thing that you could do to support people who were underground. I was thinking about something with the lawyers and and the and because they I think part of what you were also trying to frame in the book is how to understand how this could even happen where people would think that they had um, the political agency or there was the need to actually do this and it was the the times itself like with the corruption in the Nixon administration that's why maybe some of these lawyers were also radicalized and they were in the system and they were making money, but they also felt implicated in the system. And would you say that was what well the challenge found out the challenge for anybody who's writing this book, which is is you, right? Is is first off is explaining to people today why it didn't just sound insane to go underground and essentially declare war on the American government with the idea that somehow you would win. Uh, I mean, because that just sounds like something that an insane, you know, if you said that today, you would be put away. And yeah, people are already grappling with like having more than a two party system. (laughs) Like they think that's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was, you know, this was a function of 
Um, these were, to a man and woman, people who had gone through the 60s, who had gone through 1968 especially, when there seemed to be a revolutionary in every Western country. And it really became accepted dogma, at least on, in some precincts of the far left, that it, was in, that it was inevitable that that revolution was coming to American shores. And that all it took would be a hardcore group of vanguardists uh, to kind of start the war. To start the revolution. And yeah, we can say, well, that's just crazy. But Mao did it in China. Ho Chi Minh did it in North Vietnam. Fidel Castro and Che did it with 22 guys named Jose in Cuba. And there were American college students and postgrads who, who believed that they could do it here too. And that was obviously their fatal flaw because they, they fatally misjudged um, America and Americans. Let's take a short break and then we're going to come back. Maybe we'll pick up there, Brian. If that sounds good. Brian Burrow today on Living Writers. Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be right back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Brian Burrow is here. Um, the book, Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence. Um, Brian came to town to read at Literati as part of his, his book tour. And you've got some more dates coming up in um, in New York and D.C. and in Austin. Brian, I, are they still ahead? They are all ahead. And <laughs> I'm one of those writers who really doesn't pay much attention to them until the day of. I'm like, oh, this is what I have to do today. So, uh, yeah, I've got... Dates coming up. I nothing, Where, nothing I know off the top of my so, head. Yeah. So Google Brian Burrow or go to brianburrow.com. Uh, and actually, can, the, the, for, for the those, tour is not on there. Tw tw <laughs> my, tw my Twitter feed is always the best place oh, to know okay. what I'm doing. So people can find you there. They can. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Well, right before the break and before we got to hear a little bit of the Eagles, um, <laughs> which we picked because it's part of your the book's epigraphs. You, you choose three... Quotes. Yeah, it was one of the, it was one of the few really popular songs I'd found that used uh, that there was a clear reference to the underground, uh, in which in which woman in which uh, uh, Don Henley sings, and there's some rumors going around someone's underground, and that was '72. The song was written in '71, and '1771 was really the high watermark of um, of people going underground. Uh, it was. Uh, that uh, a very small window where the tactics that groups like the Weather Underground were using were given kind of l legitimacy uh, by a wide swath of America. If you go back and you look at 
the press after many of their bombings or their political actions, as they called them, you know, there were there was almost never any sense of outrage. You know, there was a sense that this was just an extension of the 60s, which is really what it is. This is what we're talking about, a period from 1970 until the last underground militants were um, arrested in 1984. There was this, these were essentially the, the hardest core um, uh, militants from the 60s that essentially didn't win up, didn't want to give up a war that they uh, kind of lost to the Nixon administration. And so it's a sad story in some ways. It's if you if, if you agree with them, uh, it can also be a, you know there are moments of triumph, but basically it's a story of a, a few hundred young people who declared war on the United States of America and, and lost pretty badly. When so I know so I know you said that this book was was something that no one's ever written about this. So you were curious. So you were like, this 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 could be a book, right? Um, but also when, when you were in your 20s, Brian, like was it something, did you feel like these, like the, the impulse or the urge to revolution? Or did you, you huh. know how, like did you have a Che period? Or did I, don't, you... I didn't even know such people existed. I grew up in a small town in Texas. Temple, Texas. Yeah. Uh, this was not part of my life at the time. I was born in 61. The only events in this book that I think I'd ever heard of uh, as a teenager would have been the Symbionese Liberation Army's um, kidnapping of Patty Hearst in February 1974, which was, of course, a, a huge media spectacle. Um, but as for the rest of it, in fact, I, I hear this from people all the time, that they just didn't know all of this. It's because so much of the action, so much of the violence, so many of the bombings occurred in really three areas. Um, the Bay Area, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, uh, New York, um, and to a lesser extent, Chicago. And, but, I mean, if you were growing up in, in Des Moines or, or Jackson, Mississippi, or uh, Portland, Maine, you know, this was not, you know, you weren't, you weren't living in fear of, of someone blowing up a bomb outside your, uh, your door. These were things that were happening in far off cities. And yet it was happening with, with a frequency that, that amazes people today that people have a hard time, um, uh, accepting the Senate did a, did a study and found more than 2,500 bombings in the United States in an 18 month period in 70, 71 and 72. <laughs> That's crazy. And how have, as a society, have we forgotten that? Right, right. And and not and and it seems like as a society, looking back and how you portray it in the book as well, is that not too shaken up about it, you know. Well, it's because um, it, it, it's the nature of a bombing has changed so much. Our idea of it has changed so much since 9-11. Since 9-11 for the last 15 years, when you and I talk about, about a bombing, we're talk, typically talking about something where that's where there's. A violent intent where someone's trying to kill somebody back in the 1970s I dare say less than 1% of the bombings that occurred um, injured anybody they were by and large what I call protest bombings the type of thing typically where an underground group would place a bomb outside the Capitol or in a Capitol bathroom outside a police station a courthouse uh, it would go off at 1 in the morning a security guard would run out and go what the and the next day the underground group would issue a communique uh, denouncing some aspect of the American condition, whether the war or whatever the issue of the day was. That's typically what you're talking about. That said, there were a small number of, you know, pretty violent uh, uh, attacks, including one group, the FALN, a Puerto Rican independence group that detonated a bomb on a Wall, in a Wall Street restaurant in January 1975 that killed four people, and several other bombings and attacks. The Black Liberation Army, for instance, existed only to assassinate policemen, which they did with some regularity. So it wasn't like it, this was entirely a game of exploding press releases. It was also a game of life and death that the American government 
um, took, you know, with deadly seriousness, even if much of America kind of rolled their eyes and said, oh, those are just crazy people on, in New York and San Francisco. It really doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't impact on my life. Right. I th- you know, could, I think, could we define, or could you rather define um, going underground? Like yeah. what that means? Well, back in, in the 1970s, if you went uh, underground, it essentially means, um, uh, in many cases, many of these people were already fugitives. But going underground in the 60s and 70s meant changing your ID and living as someone else. Um, there's a popular myth that the Weather Underground, which is the, the first and by far the largest and most significant of these groups, kind of created the underground. In fact, the underground... When these radicals began entering, it already existed. There was a huge underground uh, from the 1960s of draft dodgers, those who didn't want to go to the war and didn't want to go to Canada. I think, uh, I forget the number, but it was something on the order of 35,000 draft dodgers already living underground under false ID, um, which back then was somewhat easier to get than it is now um, because very few of those people who went underground and lived underground uh, with new identities um, were ever caught. And they would use, for example, identities of maybe um, babies that had died. Well, that's exactly. That, that, that was the common tactic that you now can't do. Uh, they would walk through cemeteries, find uh, the uh, grave of a baby who died around the time that they were born, um, and then go get a copy of the baby's birth certificate. Using that birth certificate, they could then get Social Security driver's license and build an entire identity. And for most of the people that were underground for multiple years, they would do that 20 and 25 times. It was a long and laborious process living underground. Uh, you had to be able to show, if you got if you got pulled over, you had to show that you were not Bill Ayers, you were not Bernadine Dorn, you were Jane Smith or, or Joe Smith. Otherwise, you know, you were history, you were, you were in jail. Uh, so that, that, was, that was part of the stress and anxiety of living underground. And being prepared to move, because you write about how in San Francisco, I think, um, was it um, someone had a like a, a pickup truck that he was quite yeah. attached to. But I think eventually that even had. To well, that go. was during that was the uh, uh, a famous incident that we write about in detail for the first time called the encirclement. So when you say we can I let's not oh, forget I'm just encirclement. Using the ro- I'm just using you? the royal. Word, oh, OK, because I wondered if I was like, it's, who else is in on this? No, nah, it's it's uh, <laughs> it, it, it's part of generally being part of organizations like Vanity Fair uh, that I, you kind of get used to uh, not taking in the, you know, independent credit for stuff. But this and is I have a pretty. To, I have to remember with a book that it, well, actually, I have to take independent credit because I'm the only person who did it. So sorry. <laughs> oh, no, that's. But you were going to say the encirclement when I. Well, it was a moment. It was really one of the more exciting moments of this whole period when, uh, by sheer luck, the FBI managed to find the leadership of the Weather Underground in downtown San Francisco outside a Western Union office, and uh, uh, a high-speed chase ensued. Uh, and uh, Jeff Jones and Bernadine Dorn, the top two leaders of the group, managed to get away. And we'd always known that this had happened, but she'd never talked about it. Jeff had never talked about it in detail, but I managed to track down um, the FBI guys who did it and got all the FBI records, which they gave me. And And so I could actually, you know, write down which block you know they they turned at how fast people were going and stuff like that Uh, but it was that type of incident that i don't want to say it was fairly common but you know the the cops were 
were inept in the 70s. They didn't have a lot of the skills that they have today, but they weren't totally inept. And or almost, technology either, Oh, right, no. to be fair. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they were singularly incapable of infiltrating informants into these groups. You know, whether the Weather Underground was at large for seven years and the FBI managed to get exactly one informant in, into the group that they pulled uh, right. after just a too few months. Too soon, right? Yeah, way too right. soon. Um, was it? Was there a big difference in when you spoke with, or I wonder if there, I don't know, I imagine, because you were speaking with the attorneys, and you were speaking with some of the radicals, the revolutionaries themselves, and then you spoke to law enforcement. Um, did you notice, like, w- with the tone or how people talked about the history of it, that it changed, at least between the groups? Well, yeah, you know in this business. You know you have a sense going in. The lucidity and the the viewpoint of the person that you're gonna talk to. I I worked with retired FBI agents who are some of the greatest talkers in the world on a number of projects and books over the years, and so I know going in that they're gonna be some flavor of right wing. Uh, are they gonna be hardcore, you know, uh, Fox Newsy right wingers, or are they gonna just be kind of eye rolling those crazy radicals, uh, you know, uh, uh, right wingers? So. And that's fine. I'm comfortable with that. And I'm equally comfortable in um, speaking with, the, the, as I call them, the alumni of the, the underground. Um, you know, uh, some of them are still true believers. Some have turned all the way around and are like, what the hell did I do? And then I, I found the most thoughtful of them basically said, OK, um, uh, what we did was was probably morally wrong. That is resorting to political violence. We probably shouldn't have done it, but what's important is for people today to understand why we did it. Um, the you know to understand that we were fighting in our minds against extreme moral forces. That is the idea um, that the Vietnam War was wrong. That. African-Americans actually had been subject to hundreds of years of oppression, that the Nixon administration was every bit as criminal as, in fact, the radicals out in the streets were saying. I mean, that that's really that's the quandary that I think many readers confront in this book is that very few of us will read this book and say, well, gosh, that they were right to resort to violence. But on the other hand, it's difficult to look at some of the things they were fighting for and fighting against and not not acknowledge that there was some legitimacy, uh, in fact, a good deal of legitimacy uh, to the arguments that they were trying to make. And I think in the end, that's where I came down is that, um, you know, I have to agree that much of what they were fighting for was were things that we agree with today. But it's difficult to say that their only option was to resort to revolutionary violence. Um, and I, I think that's one of the quandaries you come to at the end of the book when I talk to readers they're like gosh you just kind of have to you have to figure out you know if if i were living in nazi germany in 1938 i had the chance to assassinate hitler would i have it's that type of thing because so that's what many of them say we believed in 68 and 69 and 70 we believed was at stake we were living in a new nazi germany and do you stand up and fight we're going to take a short break we've got living writers i'm t hetzel today on the program brian burrow is here Standing up and fighting. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Brian Burrow is here um, with his book, Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence. I'd have to say not so forgotten here at WCBN. It's not not violence, but revolutionary. <laughs> this is like a, yeah, I think we would definitely, everyone here would be embracing your book, <laughs> Brian. Well, I've, it certainly has become a lot more revelant in the last five years with the with the rise of Occupy uh, That's and what, Black Lives Matter. I mean, it, yes, the, the, their income inequality was not an issue back in the day, uh, but, but the central issue that most of these underground groups were dealing with after the war was was African-American uh, 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 brutality against blacks, black oppression. Uh, if you go back and look at much of what the Weather Underground especially was protesting against was, you know, a black kid would be shot in the Bronx and they would go blow up some police cars. It was exactly the, si- the same issues that are present today, the Black Liberation Army, which was a, a spinoff of the Black Panthers. Um, they existed only to assassinate cops, and they did so fairly successfully for about three years. Um, so it's, it's interesting today, I get asked often, why don't you think activists today have resorted when, when faced with pretty much the same issues? Why have they not resorted to violence? And um, I've seen a few calls after the, you know, there was a, a little bit of violence in Baltimore last year building or two went up in, 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 in flames, and there were actually some op-ed pieces that I saw for the first time in which some young activists were talking about t- taking things to the next level, which is, of course, the euphemism for resorting to political violence. But I, I actually don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, I think, because many, if not most, of the activists that are, that are out there in the streets today are too smart. They've seen what happened when groups like the Symbionese Liberation Army and the FALN and the New World Liberation Front and the Weather Underground resorted to violence. And you know what they achieved? Bupkis. If you go back and you look at, at, at these underground groups from the 70s, it's pretty hard to, to identify any political legacy that they had, any systemic change that they left behind in America. About all you can say is that if you're irked at the security that you have to go through to get into the university administration building right. or a police or a police station or a corporate headquarters you can blame the weather underground because that's when this security all started yeah that was actually I, an interesting moment in the book when i think that the pentagon you could just walk in or so oh, and yeah. um, walk around in the halls and no problem that's how that, that's how <laughs> and, they bombed the pentagon and cuz they just scouted a bathroom that wasn't used that often and uh, the, their, yeah. the weather underground's first big uh, bombing attack was june 1970 and they just walked up to the second floor uh uh, restroom outside the police commissioner of New York's office. They just kind of waved at, at the officer downstairs. Hi, officer. Walked up and put a bomb in the uh, it was bathroom. was the women's room, right? Was, 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 it, I think? Wow, your memory's even better than mine. The sex of the, of the bathroom sometimes escapes my <laughs> feeble mind. Um, and so, yeah. It well, was, anyway, it should be non-gendered anyway. Yeah. Maybe they are now. Uh, it was it was easier to find places to put bombs back then before all the security that has happened in the last 45 years. So thanks for that. Weather <laughs> underground. Well, I mean, when you were saying it, I, I, and I don't mean to make light of it because it actually felt very disheartening to hear you say that. Like there's something about um, I don't know why. Maybe maybe it's I'm still trying to romanticize it somehow and it's not it's not romantic i mean i think the book shows that well you know clearly. it it started off very romantic 
because because it was the SDS, right? The was, students for well, the Weather Underground, which first began going underground in January 1970s, was the leadership, a spinoff of the dominant uh, American protest movement, the the Students for Democratic Society, sometimes called SDS. And yeah, it was very romantic to say we're going to go underground and fight the power like Fidel did, like Ho Chi Minh did, like Mao did. And then, um, you know, three months in, they begin, they're already building bombs and uh, exploding some of them. And a young man who ran their cell in New York City was uh, building a, a, a group of pipe bombs. Is this Terry? Yeah, this is Terry Robbins. And the intent by this group of weathermen was to blow up a series of pipe bombs around an officer's dance at Fort Dix, New Jersey. So that would have taken a lot of lives. That would have killed people in the dozens. And we would not be looking upon back upon the weather underground as this kind of groovy, fight-the-power type of guys. They would have been seen as what they almost were, which is revolutionary murderers, because they didn't really know yet how to build a safe bomb. But even... There was that 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 destroyed a lot of the romanticism, but even more was an event, a seemingly unrelated event that came five months later when a a group of of unrelated uh, student radicals in a kind of one-off bit of violence blew up the the math research center at Wisconsin, brought down the entire building and killed a grad student. Who had a family. Yeah, he left behind, I think, three kids. And it was it was an event that really blew away the allure of violence for many of those in the movement at a time where everybody was kind of having to face, you know, we're not winning this war of demonstrations with Nixon. He's he's going to keep escalating no matter what we do. And and the great debate going on among kids in the movement was, do you go underground and fight? Do you give up and uh, go into a commune, or do you just give up and go to graduate school? And these were the ones who ended up uh, saying, it doesn't matter. We're going to go underground. And there were still people underground 15 years later. Brian, will you read a section of the book so we can get a sense of... Oh, absolutely. I'm flattered. Uh, The part that I sometimes read when I give talks is... um, is early in the book in which I'm trying to explain to people not only what I did, but the, the what these people did and, and, and what it's like to deal with the legacy of, if you're 70 years old, dealing with the legacy of what you did when you were 25, and it involved violence, and you've never gone to jail, and you've never accused. Uh, you've never been accused of some of these things. And I had a, a lot of people to deal with like that in, in the book, and I'll, I'll begin with the first one. The woman sitting across from me in a bustling Brooklyn diner is a 68-year-old grandmother now, freckled and still very attractive. She has warm eyes and short silver hair combed over her ears. She wears a long-sleeved pink blouse. At her side, her five-month-old grandson burbles in his stroller. By training, she's a math teacher. She has taught almost 30 years in the New York schools. This was what she decided to do when she got out of jail. Her name is Kathy Wilkerson, and many years ago she was briefly famous. In her 20s, she belonged to the Weather Underground, the militant group that famously declared war on the United States in 1970. Its favored weapons were bombs, which it spent six long years detonating in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, Pittsburgh, and Washington. It was Wilkerson's family townhouse in Greenwich Village that was destroyed in the group's most infamous bombing on March March 6, 1970. The accidental explosion killed three of her closest friends, including her lover. She was one of two women who crawled from the rubble and made their way underground. 
Years ago, Wilkerson wrote a memoir of her radical youth called Flying Close to the Sun. But as several of her peers did in their own books, she left out almost all details of her underground career. There's page after page about being loneliness, about being lonely and penniless and adrift. But she's never explained what she actually did underground. There's almost nothing about her clandestine work, about her role in the bombings. It's all about the politics. This is our sixth meeting, and while she's happy to discuss old friends and old politics, she has sweetly resisted my entreaties to discuss her involvement in what are euphemistically known as the Weather Underground's political action. Another Weatherman alumnus, however, has told me he's the father of Wilkerson's adult daughter, in fact, and though they rarely speak, he happens to live four blocks away. Even though he perfected the group's bomb design and served for years as a as its explosives expert, he, unlike Wilkerson, has never been public, I, publicly identified. A grandfather with a patchy white beard, he can be seen most mornings walking a tiny white poodle through the streets of his neighborhood, which is called Park Slope. So, I say to her now, I've been told what your role was. Her eyelids flutter. She reaches down and begins to rock the stroller. You think you know? She says, yeah, I say, you were the West Coast bomb maker. There's a long pause. She glances down at her grandson. He begins to spit up. She reaches down, wipes off his chin, and takes him into her arms, gently sliding a bottle between his lips. Look, she finally says, I felt I had a responsibility to make the design safe after the townhouse. The bomb design, she means. I didn't want any more people to die. And then she begins to talk about that secret life, about the bombs she built and detonated, mostly in the San Francisco area, all those years ago. The story she tells is like many I heard from those who joined Weather and other radical underground groups of the 1970s, who mistakenly believed the country was on the brink of a genuine political revolution, who thought that violence would speed the change. It is elusive and impressionistic, a mixture of pride and embarrassment, marked with memory lapses that may or may not be convenient. Interviews for this book, many of which took months to negotiate and arrange, played out across the country and beyond. At a Mexican restaurant in Berkeley, a remote farmhouse in Maine, a series of cafes in Rome, a Senegalese buffet in Harlem, a taco joint in Albuquerque, the homes of retired FBI agents in New Jersey, California, and elsewhere, as well as a prison or two. Like many of those I saw, Wilkerson is angry at some of her old friends and 40-odd years later still grappling to make sense of what she did. It's all so fantastic to me now, she says as we rise to leave. It's just so absurd I participated in all this. The challenge for me, I say on the sidewalk outside, is to, ex- to, is to explain to people today why this all didn't seem as insane then as it does now. Yes, she says, stepping into a morning rain. That's it exactly. Thank you, Brian. Oh, my pleasure. And so that moment was one of the most is that why why did you choose that moment to start the the book? Because she was lucid and she had a grandson and I thought about that the moment so many times when I tried to understand. Look, I talk with um some of these people especially African American members of the BLA are still in prison. Um and I had to walk into a prisons or walk into people's retirement homes and make the case why they should talk about 45-year-old violence that they've never spoken to, uh, to someone that they didn't even know. And with Kathy, you know, it took five and six times. But that was the one that always stuck with me because I knew who she was and she knew who I was. And we kind of had a little unspoken agreement that the truth mattered more than either than her protection or mine, that, that there was value in publishing 
accurate history. Because that's that's the one thing to understand before you even approach this book or read anything I write is I don't I'm not political. My only interest here is in accurate history. I'm not left wing, I'm not right wing, I don't have a wing. I just wanna write accurate history. What about protection? What do you mean by that? Well, a lot of the people in the book knew that if they talked out loud for the first time, there was going to be a lot of blowback, uh, perhaps legally, but certainly socially to the extent that they still were um, active friends with others who'd been in, in the movement, and many were. So you had people like Howie Mochtinger, who was one of the early field marshals of the uh, of the uh, of the weather underground, and Howie was the first person to tell me to pu- to, to puncture the myth that weather always did kind of nonviolent protest bombings. He was the one who said, "No, no, 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 you're missing the first three months before the townhouse when we were trying to kill police, we were trying to kill people in the military." I'm like, well, "How do you know?" He said, "Because I did the first bombing, and we tried to kill cops in Berkeley." And I said. But there's no the history books have no such mention of a bombing. He said that's because we never took credit. Go look at the, an unclaimed bombing on the night of February 21st, 1970 in Berkeley. That was me. That was us. And we were trying to kill cops. You know, and then you had someone like Ron Flegelman, who is the grandfather with a patchy white beard I mentioned, that I met through other alumni. And Ron was the, the explosives expert. He built all the bombs. And when I sat and talked with him, you know, after after a time or two, I said to him, you know, um, you've been a school teacher in the New York public schools for 30 years. You've now retired. You know, the newspapers, especially the tabloids, are going to come after you big time if you talk. He said, yeah, well, I'm ready for that. And that's exactly what happened. The New York Post did like a two or three page spread. The first weekend the book came out, you know, about the terrorist who's been teaching our children, our teacher, our, our schools. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't too pleased. But he's, he's, I almost said weathered it. Oh, geez. He's gotten through it. <laughs> you know, I don't know because we don't speak anymore. He, because he won't speak. I don't speak with Kathy anymore either. Because they won't speak to you? Uh, they don't speak to me anymore. The book came out. I told the story. Uh, nobody complained about any inaccuracies. But I think it it, it was difficult for them socially uh, not only, I mean, the world knew Kathy Wilkerson had been in the Weather Underground. The world didn't know Ron Flegelman had been in the Weather Underground. There were a lot of people that identified themselves as members of the Underground in this book for the first time, and that I identified um, for the first time. Um, and I can't tell you that I even know the repercussions, because in every single one where they were serious, I don't talk to the people anymore. We'll take a short break, and then we'll be back to talk more with Brian Burrow. While he's here, we're going to talk more, Brian. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from the Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Brian Burrow is here. Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence, the book on the table. Thanks to Tessa at Penguin Press for sending the book. Um, and many thanks to Brian for talking with me today while you're in town. My pleasure. This is actually the first time I've ever been to Ann Arbor. Really? I can't believe it. Really? Well, been to Detroit many times. I just never came out here. Well, come on back. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome anytime. <laughs> um, so when did you so when did you first consider yourself a writer? What was that moment for you? Well, I had was it in journalism school? No, 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 no. You don't understand. I grew <laughs> writer, writer. It's I mean, I mean, is it too highfalutin? It was for me. Growing up in a small town in Texas, all I ever wanted to be was a newspaper reporter. Uh, my dream job. Why? Um, I uh, <laughs> Well, you want to be, be honest? Because when I was in sixth grade, I worked on the little student newspaper, and I found out that writing on a newspaper is like the greatest thing you can ever do. You get to run around and ask nosy questions that anybody else, that nobody else gets to ask. <laughs> then you get to run around to everybody going, look what I know, look what I know that you don't. <laughs> And then you get to publish it in the newspaper. And you know what? They put your name on top of it. And, you know, especially in high school, that was a real ego boost. And um, that's, you know, that's what got me into journalism. And then I found out that I I liked it and I was decent at it. And um, it wasn't the, you know, I went to the Wall Street Journal out of University of Missouri Journalism School. Uh, and I was there until my first book, which was called Barbarians at the Gate, which I wrote with my colleague, uh, John Hellyer. I was 27. And we got very lucky in that it became a number one New York Times bestseller, at, at which point I could do what I wanted. And I ended up at Vanity Fair, where I've been ever since. And it was, it was when I was at Vanity Fair that I started calling around. And it felt weird to say I'm a reporter for Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair doesn't really have reporters. They have writers. So I started calling myself a writer. And I can actually remember asking kind of colleagues, like, is this pretentious to, to, to call people and say you're a writer? They're, not, they're like, no, we do that, too. So what does it so so what does it mean to you when you say I'm a writer? Uh, nothing. It, it, uh, um, it's weird sometimes when you're talking with civilians. Uh, when you're talking with, mo I don't have. I mean, most of my friends are. Um, I, I split my time between uh, Texas and uh, New Jersey. In New Jersey, my friends are mostly Wall Streeters. In Texas, they're mostly in politics. And the, uh, the weirdness is always just if when I meet someone new and I say I'm a writer, they, everyone kind of looks at you. Because most normal people at the 7-Eleven run into plumbers and electricians and lawyers and doctors. They don't run into writers. And so you say, oh, hi, I'm a writer. And immediately they look at you like, yeah, sure you are. And by the way, what does that even mean? What do you mean? You write children's books? You write stuff in the bathroom at night and pin it on the mirror? I mean, are you real? But, you know, so, it, you know, I say I'm a writer and then I know, you know, I can just count the beats for the person to find like a delicate way to say, are you full of crap or what do you what type of writer are you? You know, I mean, because if you're not John Grisham or Stephen King, if you're not some household name, but you're still a writer, there is often that kind of awkward pause about, OK, so what kind of writer are you? Yeah. Try saying you're a poet, Brian. <laughs> that's, that's perhaps even worse. No, that would just be like saying that you're poor. 
<laughs> Touche. <laughs> Let's talk about process then. So yeah. this book you said was like, well, how do you work? You said it was like the most difficult project. Yeah. Was that because of the research part of the process yeah. or, or the writing part? Or the writing's never. And the structuring? The, well, look, look, it's all like baseball. In ba- baseball, there's just two skills, hitting and fielding. In producing books, there's just two skills pretty much, research and writing. Now, structure and organization and architecture is all part of the writing. To me, the writing is candidly it's it's like having sex professionally it's just the most fun i if i could just write life would be a box of chocolates but it's the research that's that's heavy work the difference between me and a novelist is the novelist gets to sit sit there in his rainy kitchen in seattle you know drinking his coffee and he can build a house in his mind i have to go into the freaking forest and chop down the trees lug them back to my garage and build a house there myself. I mean, you know, it's just an entirely different thing. The research is all the work. Well, is your well, well, okay. Well, writing's I, fun. I see. I see you on that. But then I also would say, even if you're writing fiction, like a novel instead of a narrative um, nonfiction piece, you still have to do research. No, you don't. You you might have to. You can if you want to. You don't have to. I will say this while I make I joke about that around uh, novelist friends um, th- about how easy it is to write fiction. It, it it can be, but writing good fiction or excellent fiction I think is much harder than writing good nonfiction or a good excellent nonfiction because. Typically speaking, I, I I I know that some of my stuff's going to be good because I'm, a, I'm attacking a a sexy topic. I, my material is going to be interesting to a lot of people. If you're a novelist, you don't have that as a given. And so, are you going to write a novel as well? Then, so you, you don't know, have I've to tried. chop down any trees. I have totally tried. I have tried several times uh, during uh, low periods, uh, and I found. Did you I, say low or slow? Low. You know where I don't have some where I don't have the right idea. I've fiddled with fiction, and I found that I have no imagination. I just can't make stuff up. I did it. I I wrote seven chapters of a novel about fifteen years ago and showed it to my editor, and he said it was great. I said I can't do this. It just takes too much out of me. It just having to sit there and and imagine is this believable? Would somebody actually do it? Is it interesting? It was just too much work. I mean, look, if I can write five pages. In a day on, on a book, on, on a nonfiction book like Days of Rage, I consider that to be an outstanding day. But I mean, I, w- I was struggling to get a page or two of believable prose uh, out of a novel. Uh, maybe, you know, you just, if, if you do it more, you would, it would be easier. But for me, it was just, it was too alien. But I noticed that you said when we began talking about Days of Rage, um, narrative nonfiction piece is what you referred to it yeah. as. And so I liked that, that it's like you, you are um, saying narrative, like the, the story is driving it. Oh yeah, I do a thing. I, I do the same thing all the time. My magazine articles are the same magazine articles in terms of structure, and my books are pretty much the same thing. A, a thing. Yeah, I don't write analysis. I don't write think pieces. Um, I don't write th- books full of scenes in which I go talk to people. I write stories. Um, the, the, the point of my books is first and foremost, we can sit here and talk about the issues of political violence and revolution all day long, but I don't write about issues. I, I write about people. I write chronologically uh, with characters and scenes, and the idea is not to write an important book. It's a, a, the, the entire idea is to get the, 
to write a book that's so entertaining that the reader will get to the end. My idea, my sole goal is to entertain. If at the end you will have learned something, and 99 times out of 10, out of 100 you will, well then that that's great, and I and I and I I've I've achieved a secondary goal, but I don't. I, I'm not a polemicist. I don't have an agenda of anything other than I want to write you a, whop, a whopping good read. So it is about it's about the story. It's about the entertainment, the engagement. That is of my your mind that is my confession. Your it audience. All, it is all about the story. And in, in Days of Rage, it just happens to be six or seven more or less stories that follow each other, but that are them- thematically exactly the same. Uh, the story of several different groups, and then the, the the Uber story of the Weather Underground, which weaves out weaves in and out of them, as well as the story of the inept FBI weaving in and out of one of these with a lot of recurring characters. What's the next story, Brian? I'm already doing it, and it's the first. I can't talk about it because it's somebody else's book. It's a book that I agreed to do with someone who's a public figure, and it's an ongoing public situation. And as much as I love history and I've loved writing popular history these last three books, it's so much fun to be writing something that is in the headlines. Um, And I'm kind of behind the scenes writing, writing this book, and I... Uh, can't wait until one day, perhaps, it'll actually be published. But for now, it's just a lot of fun. And then you'll come back and talk with me? I promise. Well, I would love that. I would love that. Um, with the, with the, just an, one note on the, the weather underground, is Bill Ayers, is he, he's somewhat still, he's around here still, isn't Bill he? Bill is and still a successful, sh- retired uh, professor uh, and author. He, I think he had a book out last year. Maybe it was the year before. He's had a couple of memoirs. Bill and I jostled and, and circled each other for about four years on this book uh, uh, via email, and he never agreed to sit down with me because, you know, the fact is he can write his own books, right. and he would m- rather tell his own version of the truth. I would say that mine is more is more accurate than, than his rather impressionistic uh, view of, of his past, but that's fine. I have, I have respect for him, uh, even as I wish he had had, you know, had been brave enough to sit down for an independent historian. Yes, for that, that accurate history, like someone who doesn't have an ax to grind, as you Well, said. it's not like Bill is a chicken. Bill actually went on uh, Fox News a couple of years ago and fought with Megyn Kelly, so he's got a, you know, he's got a set on him. But uh, he he didn't he didn't see the need to uh, speak with me, even though he had uh, even though many of his friends did. Hmm. And what's your next piece for Vanity Fair? That is being debated as we speak. Uh, for a moment there, I thought it might be Apple and the FBI. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, and I think everything else, I'm probably not supposed to talk about. Okay. Well, then on that note of mystery. Well, so I'll say thank you so much, Brian, for talking with me Thanks today. for coming by. I love the tunes. <laughs> well, everyone, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Brian Burrow, his book, Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence. Until next time.
from the pilgrims and to the buffaloes who once ruled a plain. Like the vultures circling beneath the dark clouds looking for the rain. Looking for the rain. Just like the city that stagger on the coastline in a nation that just can't stand much more. Like the forest buried beneath the highway, never had a chance to grow. Never had a chance to grow. And now it's winter. It's winter in America. Constitution, a noble piece of paper with free society, the struggle, but they died in vain. And now democracy is a ragtime on the corner, hoping for some rain. It looks like either hoping, hoping for some rain. And I see the robins perched in barren treetops. They're watching last-ditch races marching across the floor. But just like the peace signs that vanished in our dreams, never had a chance to grow. Never had a chance to grow. It's winter, it's winter in America, and all of the hillers have been killed or betrayed. Yeah, but the people know, the people know it's winter.
it's a winter Winter in America And all of the hillers Done been killed Sit away Yeah, the people know The people know it's winter
Rep looks into the end zone. Touchdown, Devin Funches. And the crowd here at Michigan Stadium loving it. Oh, Finally, the fruits of their labor paying off, absolutely getting a goal. And with that, hello and welcome to today's Wednesday edition of the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name's Morris Fabry. I'm hosting the show today. On the other side of the glass, I have with me Alec Geese, Nate Sorensen, and Emily Harrard. Uh, figured I'd start the show talking about the college football playoff just because it was a topic of interest to me personally. Uh, it, was, it has been discussed in several areas that, you know, maybe... Uh, Michigan's loss to Iowa last Saturday because it put Penn State as the de facto leader of the Big Ten race if Michigan were to lose to Ohio State on November 26th would be a measure of excluding Ohio State from the playoff conversation if, say, Clemson wins out, Washington wins out, and Penn State wins out that a two-loss Penn State team would make it to the college football playoff over the Ohio State Buckeyes. I thought this was a ridiculous notion. I didn't get 